Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivulani. Interest in the use of psychedelics to treat mental health problems continues to increase as word spreads about promising clinical trials and mainstream media outlets shine a light on the issue. Regular listeners to Raise Line will recall a fascinating conversation we had with Dr. Jim Fadiman, one of the pioneers in psychedelic research, as well as other guests who have weighed in on the question. Today, we're delighted to add another voice to this discussion, Dr. Manish Agarwal, who has extensive background and experiences that span medicine, engineering, philosophy, ethics, and research. He's the co-founder and CEO for Sunstone Therapies, a company focused on the delivery of psychedelic-assisted therapy and defining the standards for optimal patient delivery through clinical trials. Previously, he was the co-director of clinical research at Maryland Oncology Hematology, where he cared for cancer patients for 15 years. I'm really looking forward to exploring his interest in whole person healing and the potential of psychedelic therapies among related topics. And before we get started, I'd like to thank our shared friend and former Osmosis advisor and investor, Zishan Mohammadi, for introducing me to Manish. So Manish, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Chef. So we always like to ask our guests to describe in their own words some professional highlights. And in your case, what got you interested in medicine and then wind up specializing in oncology to begin? So it's a interesting story. Being an Indian, you realize uh, so I had Indian parents. And when I was uh, an undergrad, I wanted to study philosophy. <laughs> Actually, So my father said, you know, I didn't come to this country for you to be a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> so I went into engineering. And then um, when I was a fourth year, you know, finishing, I was like, I don't, I like engineering. I, I'm getting good grades, but I don't love it. And I want to do something more uh, with people. And so I was going to do biomedical engineering and then just go to med school and you can do what you want from there. And so I went to medicine. And then after medicine, I did my residency at Georgetown and they had a four-year program in medicine and philosophy. And so I was able to get my master's in philosophy. And during that time, um, I realized how much I was interested in these questions around meaning and death and why are we here. And oncology is a natural place where these issues come up all the time. So it was a specialty that was sort of the laboratory where philosophical questions were obvious for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, end of life care for sure with regards to, um, I remember one book that we recommend highly to our, our readers is Atilago Wande's Being Mortal, which talks a lot about this and, and has introduced many students like me and others to the concepts of palliative medicine, which is a good transition, I think, to how you maybe you got inter interested in psychedelic therapy. So can you give us a bit of that backstory and then what led to the founding of Sunstone Therapies? Sure. Um, so just carrying on with that story, then I did my fellowship at the NIH uh, and at the NCI and was on faculty in oncology there and then went into practice. And, you know, after 18 years of seeing cancer patients uh, pretty much every day and dealing with their families, you realize that you're really able to treat the cancer very well. But in terms of uh, a big determinant of a pa patient's experience in their life is their emotional health. And we really didn't have very good tools for that. And I think over time, being an oncologist, it really started to wear me down and feelings of burnout and even my own depression of seeing innocent people suffer, not having good tools and really not be able to impact them started to, to really get to me. Um, and then at the same time, I started reading the research that was happening around psychedelic therapy in patients with cancer. And so then I couldn't believe that there was actually an intervention that was directed towards this hardest of things that any human can go through. So if you're told you have a cancer diagnosis and you might die, 
it raises all these questions around meaning. Why am I here? What matters? What relationships really matter to me? Was it all worth it? And so to not have tools and then having something that was promising is what sort of led me down that path. And then I visited uh, people that have been doing research in this and said, wow, whether it works or not, it's worth looking into because at least it takes this aspect seriously. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for sure. So tell us a bit about maybe those original kind of visits. Was it Roland Griffiths you first met with at Hopkins and then yeah. kind of built it from there? Yeah, it was um, initially it was Mary Casamano at Hopkins. She's a therapist there. And then I went up and visited Mary and Roland. Um, and then Mary Casamano told me about Bill Richards. Um, and so I met Bill Richards and he said, you should think about doing this fellowship in psychedelic research at CIS. And so I took, while I was in practice, I took a year um, to do that and to really learn about psychedelic therapy uh, and research in that setting. And then Paul Thamby, one of my clinical partners, we wrote a, a study uh, using psilocybin for cancer patients and submitted it to the FDA and to the IRB. And I can tell you lots of stories of <laughs> now it's like two or three sentences, but it was a long journey to get there. Yeah, no, I'm sure I've heard. Uh, I may have mentioned that um, our board member, former board member, Mitch Rothschild, who was instrumental in Osmosis's story. His wife, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, runs the uh, MAPS trials for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD at the the VA, the Veteran Affairs. Um, and we're going to have her collaborator, Rick Doblin, who I think you know well as well, on the podcast in a couple of months. So uh, for our audience, look out for that. So I definitely have heard a bit about kind of all the bureaucratic hoops and all the stigma around psychedelics that happened. But obviously, we, you know, the reason we even have you on and there's so much interest in the space is there seems to be this renaissance that's happened over the past five, five, ten years or so, and resurgence of interest uh, in psychedelics, largely driven by these studies, validated studies, as well as um, it seems the need, the need that we just can't train enough mental health professionals and uh, COVID has obviously exacerbated mental health crises, etc. So can you tell us a bit about kind of you've been practicing for a long time, like how, you know, what's the state of the art right now for psychedelic therapy? And specifically, what is Sunstone working on? Why is it so unique in the space? Yeah, I mean, so psychedelics therapy was being researched in the 50s and 60s. And there was really promising early work being done. So this guy, Eric Katz, was doing some work with cancer patients at University of Chicago where um, he was actually first testing it to see if it helped with pain. So he was just giving people psychedelics and some of their pains were improving, but then he said, then he noticed that they're starting to feel better about dying or having less death anxiety. And then that was carried on with Stan Groff and, and Bill Richards at the Maryland Psychiatric Institute. And they actually introduced this concept of set and setting of how you give it. And so instead of just giving somebody psychedelic, you should prepare them for it and do it in a safe place. And that research was promising. And then it went into hibernation because of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, the drugs fell into popular culture, were abused, and so everything got shut down. And then um, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, I think uh, psychiatrists and mental health uh, professionals starting to realize that maybe they're starting to run against the limits of what they could do. You know, antidepressants and really hard to treat diseases like treatment resistant depression, uh, complex PTSD. And, and they said, well, these drugs looked promising. Let's take them back off the shelf. And so research slowly began at that time. And now I think in the last five years, there's just a huge torrent of, uh, of studies going on. So 
you know, MAPS has just completed their second phase three study. Uh, they, Compass Pathways and USONA, all have breakthrough designation at the FDA for PTSD. Um, MAPS is for PTSD. USONA is for MDD, major depression. And then Compass Pathways is for treatment-resistant depression. Um, and so I think the field has gone from like, wow, these drugs are bad, to maybe they have clinical utility, to real research being done. And I think the next two or three years are really going to determine where they come in uh, to use and whether the FDA approves them. And Sunstone Therapies is really founded on the belief that uh, the delivery is more important than the drug. And so lots of people take psychedelics and they may or not be benefit, right? If, if, if MDMA cured PTSD, then nobody that went to a rave would have PTSD anymore. And so the belief is that the right context with the right amount of support and understanding can help people resolve these difficult emotions. And so rather than uh, focused on the drug per se, we're focused on the delivery. So we spend a lot of time creating a space, physical and uh, cultural, that people can feel safe. It's in a medical setting. And then we do a lot of work around therapy and what makes it most effective. And so uh, Sunstone was born out of that. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So can you talk to us a bit about like, what is a patient experience like at Sunstone? Uh, I know these are trials you're running, um, but also, you know, say fast forward five or 10 years, hopefully the trial is successful and this becomes mainstream therapy. Um, in some ways, some, some, some therapies seem to be mainstream already. What does it look like? Cause I mean, you're talking about the wraparound experience. So there's obviously the inter, there's the pre actual taking the psychedelic, there's the during, and then there's the integration afterwards you know, talk to us a bit about, you know, how you guys have designed that and what, what, what a, a good patient experience should look like. Yeah. So I mean, to our, I think our core, our core values that we've spent a lot of time are our love and rigor. So when people come through Sunstone, we want them to feel loved and held because they're dealing with very difficult issues, but also the rigor and the discipline of a very thorough process that is very safe. And so we're always balancing those two. And, you know, if you've had an interaction with medicine, it tends to be very strict and all, sometimes you don't feel the care. And then sometimes people do alternative medicine and there's a lot of care, but sometimes not clear what you're doing. And so we're trying to always combine that. And so every aspect we think about is how can people feel cared for? Because in order for people to have the best and deepest psychedelic experience, they have to trust the, the experience. They have to trust their therapist, trust themselves. And that begins the moment they call you or enter your website. And so how we receive them, where they don't feel like they're a number, that we actually hear them, screen them, make sure that the safety is there. Then we spend time preparing them, understanding whether it's a good fit. And then so many details way that, from the way the bed is made, the lighting is there, the therapist that works with them. And then afterwards, not just to have an interesting psychedelic experience and you go home, but actually how do you make sense of that? How do you integrate it into your life? How do you then connect back into the existing mental health community? How does it become an ongoing way of growth? And so we think about, you know, this is, we spend so much time and effort, you know, whether it's uh, the tool that you first learn about Sunstone through when you come in through the center, the way it's built, you know, it's on the medical campus, but it doesn't feel like a medical space. Um, it has soft lighting, but it's very well thought about. It's not just sort of thrown together. Um, and then a lot, we spend a lot of time on the culture. So for example, psychedelic therapies can be very intense. And so 
In fact, you know, we were just treating somebody uh, last week with MDMA for PTSD, and it was pretty severe. I mean, the person was uh, suicidal, and two sessions before then, and then after these two sessions, they're really not suicidal anymore. But the impact on the therapist was very intense. Um, to be able to hear that amount of information and process it is hard for the therapist. And so so we have a built-in place where the therapist, after the session, processes there's what happened for them with our senior therapist, who is Bill Richards. And then they spend time later on thinking about what questions came up for them. And so part of good patient experience is good therapist and good employee experience. And so all those different, I mean, that's just one example of a facet that leads to an important uh, patient experience because a therapist has to be fully present and equipped to be able to do that. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. And brings me back to um, there's research that came out of Hopkins like a decade ago, sharing that, you know, what clinicians do in their daily life, like if they are smoking or if they're obese does influence patients. So like, it's almost like, clinicians have to take care of themselves first, you know, put on their own oxygen mask and the airplane analogy before they can take care of patients. Pretty salient now, especially with the burnout crisis we're seeing and the fact that we don't even have enough healthcare professionals to begin with, let alone ways to keep them in the profession for long, you know, especially with all the, the stressors they have these days. So maybe talk to us a bit about that. Like, what does it take to train a generation of psychedelic therapists? Like, who are the people you're looking for? How do you hire them? And then, um, you know, I, I like the fact that you've mentioned that, you know, you care a lot about them, the employee experience, because that, you know, you want to be able to retain them. So what are some thoughts you may have on burnout? Like, is this something that maybe 10 years from now you think the average clinician could be taking psychedelic therapies to combat symptoms of burnout or, or, or trauma that happens from caring for patients? Yeah, I mean, for sure. That's something we've been thinking about. Um, we've even talked to the hospital about COVID was really hard on a lot of hospital staff, especially ICU. And so what kind of support... Uh, could we provide for them using psychedelics that might at least alleviate some of that trauma and burnout? I think one of the first things is what you're doing and what we're talking about is medicine tends not to talk about feelings and emotions because they're sort of soft. We talk about sodium and potassium levels and EKG changes, but this is a very real part of medicine. And so to reduce some of the stigma that it's okay to to feel tired or burned out and or exhausted or depressed and that I think that's the first part. And the second is that you can really get help around it, um, whether it's therapy or maybe psychedelics, but really building in some of those programs and taking some of the stigma out are a big piece of it. And then in terms of psychedelic therapists, you know, right now that's being uh, led by the by the FDA. Generally on our trials, you have to have the lead has to be an MD or PhD and the, and the second therapist can be a bachelor's to master's level, but some mental health experience. And, you know, it's interesting. I think um, being a good therapist is really important. I actually call it therapy assisted by psychedelics. And so somebody that doesn't understand the therapeutic process uh, won't uh, be a great psychedelic therapist. And it's really the relationship um, that the more the patient can trust the therapist, the deeper they can let go and have a deeper experience. And so a patient, a therapist that understands experience, that has some formal training and is really open uh, to a new way of providing therapy. And so in the session and even afterwards, it's not as directive of like you're under psychedelic and now you should think about your mother or this aspect. 
of your history. It's letting the patient guide you and what's coming up for them, what their psyche is bringing to the surface of what they need to deal with. And it's a different model in medicine rather than the doctor being the expert saying this is what you should do or what you should think about. It's actually providing support and letting the patient direct, but then helping them during difficult circumstances. So it's the, the subtle craft. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And training is something that we, we've spent a good bit of time and effort on. Bill Richards is our chief therapist who's you know trained hundreds and thousands of people and has sat with a lot of people. So he has, so he mentors our, ther- our therapists and, and talks to them. And um, it's one thing to like read a slide about trust or to, or to or to hear a podcast about trust but when you see bill talk about trust he embodies it and so you can borrow some of his trust so sometimes if you're doubtful of the medicine or what it can do he's seen enough that you can actually feel his trust and that's contagious that's awesome no i love that and suddenly conversation we've had before about training and, and scale how do you scale it out something we're deeply interested in at osmosis is something we should keep continue the conversation around um you know what are the current focus areas for sunstone in terms of like what studies are you most excited about and then also apart from the quantitative the the rigor that you mentioned the core value you have you know what are some of the patient anecdotes that stand out the most in in your your uh, your career using therapy assisted psychedelic research yeah i mean so um we have three studies open right now and We'll be opening up two more. The one I'm super excited about is um, we have a study where a cancer patient and a family member both take MDMA at the same time with two therapists. And so they talk about how the cancer has affected their relationship because we believe that it affects not just the person, but the context. And so I'm excited. There's not been a study done like that in cancer patients uh, and a family member because the caregiver is really important. And to highlight that is part of our work. One studies with uh, major depression using psilocybin. And the other one I'm excited about is MDMA for PTSD. I mean, we've treated some people and, you know, one of my therapists who's been the therapist for 18 years said she's never seen such complex PTSD. And to see that relief is really, really heartening. Um, we're opening up another group study. I think I'm very interested in the approach around group therapy and psychedelics. And so we did the first group approach uh, to psychedelic therapy. So we treated four people at a time where they, they came together in a room and talked about the cancer diagnosis, why they're doing the study. Then the next day, all four of them took psilocybin at the same time, went to four adjacent rooms uh, right next to each other where they could hear each other, but had separate experiences. And then the next day they came back and talked about their experience as a group. And then a week later, and I'm still blown away by the connection between the people in the group. In fact, one of the I tell people like their study is eight weeks, so they meet twice. But at the end of the eight weeks, the first session, this guy who's pretty quiet, he said, I just went to war with these people. I can't stop meeting. And so it's two years later and they're still meeting because they made us continue the group even the studies over. And so we're going to be opening up another group study. And I think that this combination of a shared experience and talking about it with people that understand, I think is a very powerful aspect of, of healing. That's a really exciting, super novel types of studies you're, you're leading at Sunstone that I'm excited to see the results. And as we've talked about when I'm back at Hopkins for med school, uh, would love to even intern or do an elective or something with you guys. Cause this is fascinating to me. No, for sure. We're, 
part of our training is that we have a video room where people can actually observe some of the sessions. And so uh, depending on where you are, um, we try to pair up some of our experienced therapists with people that are newer in order to get some of that mentoring. Oh, the anecdotal, I should think about that. So in fact, um, there's so many, but I think one of the ones that's very touching for me has been, uh, I think one of the most difficult aspects when you have a younger cancer patient and, and they have younger kids. And so, you know, maybe they're in their fifties or and the kids are teenagers or in their forties and the kids are younger and to have a cancer diagnosis, it's so difficult almost their sadness is that their kids would grow up without them and and it's hard to console that and to make sense of it even as a physician and to see how they deal with it in the uh in the psychedelic has been really powerful so there's a young guy uh, with three young children and that's what he was thinking a lot about and and it was a very grueling session for him but in it you know he talked about seeing this tree and that he was this tree and even though the tree might die, the branches were still there and the kids could play off of them and that the roots would still continue to nurse the children, even when he wasn't there. So he had the sense that even when he's gone, he's, he's going to be able to provide for his children. And how did that translate? You know, he, you know, he told me like a few days or weeks after the session, uh, something had happened and he was bleeding, not, not cancer related. And his seven-year-old was like, dad, are you dying? And he said, no, no, this is what happened. But that allowed him to have a conversation with his son about cancer, about death. It's something that he would have never done before that. But he was able to talk to him about these difficult things while he was alive with his son, which is a way to teach his son in a way that he wouldn't have been able to before. And then that's one generation below. But then his mother was also having a hard time because her son is dying and or has a cancer that's potentially uh, fatal and and after that diagnosis the relationship changed and after that he went back to his mom and he said mom i want to have our old relationship back i don't know how much time we have but let's talk about things let's be together so this person that was in the middle of the cancer diagnosis was able to change both generations and that's the impact even when he's gone that the the roots continue to to nourish the other trees coming up that's beautiful. That's really uh, that type of perspective shift that psychedelics can bring, you know, just like having a new friend or having a, uh, you know, reading a book, those are perspective shifting, but this is obviously more visceral as we've heard from uh, guests like Jim Fadiman. And, and we also had Scott Carney on the podcast. He wrote the book, The Wedge, where he talks about him and his wife doing couples assisted psychedelic therapy, um, which I don't know if there are any FDA studies for that kind of stuff yet, but I think yours may be the first I've heard of where it's, you know, caregiver and patient that's very interesting it's a good uh thing you picked up on because well, why do psychedelics you know what what are they doing and i think it is this visceral felt experience so a lot of things that you hear about are concepts in your mind but uh you know you could tell someone you know you'll still have an impact when you're gone but for them to feel it in their body and in their soul level that's what's transformative and i think so many are so much of our lives are busy and lived in our heads and to actually have an embodied experience that's what's transformative that's a good that's a good pickup likewise i think thanks for articulating that uh in a way that i think our will resonate with our audience um what are some of the concerns around psychedelic or uh, therapy you know the medical community still stigmatizes this i think for the most part but uh it seems like things are turning around with all these fda approved studies 
uh, and companies like yours and Compass? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's still early days. You know, I don't know that we fully know how to best use, use them and how they should fit into current standard care that we have around mental health and other diseases. And so we need to do rigorous studies to see how to optimize their treatment. Does people Do people need one or two treatments? You know, how many integration sessions? There's so much still more to learn. And I think one cautionary tale I have is that I do think uh, we fluctuate between really being scared of them and having hype. And I don't think they're a magic bullet. I think they are a very powerful tool that can change someone's perspective and with the proper support and guidance and context, they can lead to a real transformation. But it's not that you take a pill and everything is fine and your problems go away. And so sometimes I worry about the hype that this is somehow a magic bullet that's going to cure all of people's ills. And then there's what you mentioned, the other thing of, oh, these are bad woo-woo drugs that we should not look at. And so um, I think that they're a very powerful tool, probably will change the way we think about mental health, but we really need to look at them with rigor of how to best incorporate them. Yeah, I agree. There's always a hype cycle when it comes to these kind of innovations and, uh, you know, there's no silver bullet, it seems, but certainly this is something that shows a lot of promise. So as you look toward the future, you have some very exciting studies, some great results already. Where do you see sunstone therapies in the next five years? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll have um, centers throughout the country and we want to be a trusted place where people, you know, it's like if you did neurosurgery, you're going to go to somebody that knows how to do that. And so you want to go to a place if you're doing deep psychological or soul work, that's been down this path and knows how to do it. And so we want to build centers of excellence that really know how to take care of people and hold them in a way that it's effective and transformative for them. Yeah, that's very, very exciting. Um, it'll be good to see how that, how that expands, especially with certain cities and states being very open-minded around psychedelic-assisted therapy. Obviously, Oregon, Colorado, California is being three of the main ones. You know, we are a teaching company, as you know, and we like to fill in knowledge gaps. So I'm wondering if you could snap your fingers and teach any community, any group of people, whether it's med students or patients or the general public about any topic in particular, what it would be and, and why? I think mental health um, to med students and to uh, the medical community to, you know, I went to med school residency we really, I don't feel like I got great education around that. Um, it's sort of stigmatized and, and taught in a, what I found to be quite in a boxy way. And and to make it more real about how much of an impact it is in, and as you as a person, as a med student and as a clinician and where it shows up and to raise awareness around that and understand the subtleties of what it is and not sort of stigmatize it or put it away and i didn't appreciate the full impact of it until much later in life yeah no i agree i think when i think a lot of med students especially this was true for me a decade ago when i first started med school they just haven't lived life enough like generally so many of them do come in with significant things they've gone through families and whatnot but you know who you are in your 30s is very different than who you are or in your 20s generally and so that lived experience breeds an interest in things like this and philosophy and, and other, you know, ultimately it's all abstract until you actually live it or treat patients like you've done for, for over, you know, for decades now. Um, 
I'm aware of your time, so I just had two last questions. The first is you're a clinician. You're obviously innovating. You're an entrepreneur as well. What advice would you give to our audience about meeting their, 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 the challenges of their career moving forward? You know, I guess I would look back as uh, like keep pursuing your interests, keep pursuing the things because they may not make sense until much later. So if I was an engineer and then philosophy and medicine and oncology, and now I feel like I'm actually doing what I was meant to do. And it's taken, you know, 53, it took a long time to get here, I would say. And now I'm using all of those tools every day, the engineering, philosophy, the oncology. And so in the moment, sometimes it feels like you're meandering or are you really doing your thing? And just life is long and keep keep going uh, because sometimes it comes together later. And so be curious, don't, direct is always not the best path. That's great advice and reminds me of the quote I think Steve Jobs once said, which is you can only connect the dots looking backwards, not forwards. So taking those disparate interests and just following those make a lot of sense. Um, and my last question, is there anything else you want to get across to our audience about you, about Sunstone, about this space in general? You know, I think with, uh, in terms of the space, I would, again, just emphasize that uh, with psychedelics, the, right now there's a lot of hype around the, the compound, which is somewhat important, but I think the delivery is really important. And so uh, as you think about psychedelics and learn about them, is if you're curious, the context and the set and setting and the way you approach it and how you receive it is is really going to determine the safety and efficacy and not to, not to, because um, I see as a hype grows, people just want to get psychedelics and take them and then, you know, bad outcomes can occur. And so to not, to do your, to do the work, to understand the right context of where they should be used. Yeah, perfect. That That's a great point. And I know Zeeshan speaks very highly of you and Sunstone because of that, because uh, you've designed it with, as you said, therapy is first and the psychedelics are just a tool that makes therapy more effective, not the other way around. Um, yeah, Sunstone, we're obsessed with patient experience, how to really create a safe and effective place. And so every detail is, is focused around that. Awesome. Well, I'm super thrilled about the work that you're doing and very excited to, to meet up in person when I'm back in med school, back in uh, Baltimore. Uh, and Manish, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thanks for asking me. I'll see you in February. Awesome. With that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.